Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we direct our attention to you. We have sung about you today. We've worshipped you today. We pray that during this time, through your written word, we would receive the living word, you. And that we would hear your voice. We would see by revelation from heaven what you want us to see that would change our lives. Lord God, I pray for myself that you would enable me to enunciate your words and that what comes out of my mouth would be you, Lord Jesus, and that every person under the sound of my voice would hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us and instructing us, maybe even convicting us. I pray in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, we are... Still continuing our journey through the Psalms. We call it a summer series. And, uh, this, today we're going to go to Psalm 78. And we will, we won't do this today, so don't get nervous, but we will conclude our study of Psalms in this Psalm. Now it is, if I remember right, 72 verses long. So, we're not going to do 72 verses today, so just uh, take a deep breath. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure whether it'll take another two or three Sundays to finish out this psalm. Uh, but we're going to get our, our big toe in the creek today and sort of take a look. I've entitled today's message, Tell the Coming Generation. That's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, because the coming generation is already here in some ways, and as we'll see in a little while, not necessarily. But I think what the psalmist, and we'll read that in a moment, what the psalmist is speaking of, the coming generation, uh, coming in authority and leadership. There'll be a day that the ones who are in diapers today are the ones that's going to be leading and, and be in some place of authority, whether it be in the church or in government or business or whatever it might be. Uh, but the coming generation coming up. This is a psalm about the history of Israel and the desire to not repeat past mistakes. You've heard the saying, if you don't understand history, you're bound to repeat it. And, uh, and we, we want to make sure and what, what the psalmist and the Holy Spirit through the psalmist is doing in this particular case is uh, attempting to prevent the past mistakes. And really a lot of this psalm, uh, um, identifies and illustrates the mistakes of Israel as they w- went through the, the desert. This psalm is the telling of God's ways. Everybody say God's ways. To the next generation that is the investment in the future. Now the future in some cases can be tomorrow. That have to be 50 years from now. But this psalm is God uh, through his Holy Spirit and through the pen of Asaph, the sons of Asaph. Attempting to set the history before them so that it won't be repeated. And so today... A, a little bit unusual. I'm not going to read the whole psalm because it is 72 verses. Uh, we're just going to cover today the first eight verses of this psalm. And that kind of sets the foundation of what, what I believe God's after in this. So Psalm 78, 
Uh, we're going to be- begin reading in verse 1 and read through 8. If you uh, wouldn't mind and can, would you stand while I read the Scriptures? And I'm again reading from the English Standard Version. And when I'm done reading these eight verses, I'm going to ask you to remain standing, and I'm going to read you three more verses, okay? It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And in three more verses, and they'll be on the screen. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 4, Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. And just a few verses down in that psalm. Uh, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. You can be seated. Lord, help me. Asaph starts his psalm off by basically saying this, pay attention. Listen up. I'm about to say something, and I'm about to say something important. And then he says something interesting. He said, I'm about to say something, but I'm going to tell you a parable. And I'm going to utter some dark sayings. Now, when we see the word dark, we think the devil and darkness. It's not what it means here. It means he's about to utter the mysteries from the past. In some cases, it would be considered obscure riddles. And you say, why in the world would he want to speak in parables? Well... Jesus often spoke in parables. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 13, it says all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Some of that, I'm not going to try to go deep into it, but some of that is you got to leave something for the Holy Spirit to do. Well, that's Matthew thirteen thirty four. Th- Matthew thirteen thirty five says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So Matthew is directly quoting Psalm seventy eight in reference to Jesus when he says, "I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world." He's saying something that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you and to me can't be intellectually grasped. He says, he says in, uh, I will open my mouth. I will utter dark sayings from old. And here's what he's, here's what he was, is going to utter. Here's what he writes down. Things that we have heard and known. 
that our fathers have told us. Now, let me just say this right at the beginning. The majority of this psalm and the thrust of this psalm is aimed at the fathers. First of all, let me say, and I've said it recently, that the mothers are equally responsible. I mean, the fathers have the majority of the responsibility, but the psalm, the proverb says at least twice, don't disregard the commands of your father nor the teachings of your mother. So we're not, the other part about this is every person, say everybody say every. Every person under the sound of my voice is responsible for this word. I don't care if you're single, you don't have children, you're never going to have children. You're still responsible for the next generation in some way. I'm not going to get into all the ways. But he says, he says he, I'm going to tell you the things that we have heard and known that our fathers told us. He says, verse 4, we'll not hide them from their children. Kind of confusing, isn't it? And really what he means there, we will not hide it from their grandchildren. It's the next generation. From their, but tell to the coming generation. It's interesting that in this psalm, two times in this psalm, we see the word tell, tell them. One time we see the word teach. And another time we see the word told. So four times we see some variation of tell or teach or told. And you get the drift. And that's just in these eight verses. It's important. What is he going to tell? What, what, he says, what are we, what are we going to tell this coming generation? What are we going to teach this coming generation? It's easy. His glorious deeds. What has, what has God done? Or is the old, what has God wrought? What did God do in your world? What did God do in your life? What has he done in your life? See, we want to focus on the nasty now and now. And sometimes we get enamored with the sweet by and by. But, and I've said this recently, but you, you think, you say, won't you say something different? I heard of a guy one time in Argentina who spoke a message on, on discipleship every Sunday for like eight weeks. Same message every Sunday. And one of the deacons came up to him afterwards and said, Hey, uh, you know, we've been kind of wondering, you, you're preaching the same message every Sunday. He said, Yeah, when y'all start doing it, I'll change. <laughs> Glorious deeds. What I mean by that is remember what God's done. I know now it's not so great, but what did he do before? What did he do in the past? Tell the, tell the next generation what God has done. Tell the next, next generation about God's might, about the, the magnitude of God, that God moves mountains. God moves boulders. God moves with the strength that no one can fathom. His glorious deeds. His might and the wonders that he has done. Sometimes we wonder what God's doing. But the fact is, when it's all said and done, we really are in awe of what God has done. We need to, we need to make sure that the next generation is hearing 
about what God has done. The next generation is hearing about what a mighty God we serve. The next generation is hearing about the wonders, the things that make our heads spin that God has done. I'm not talking about sensationalism. I'm not talking about just for the sake of spectacular. I know spectacular attracts a lot of people. It would probably attract me. I don't know. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about understanding who God is. That's what I'm talking about. One aspect of this psalm that we have to remember is that God is dealing with his promised covenant people. And we see in this psalm, we see God's patient preservation of his people. And he's saying, you know, I want to make sure that we don't repeat history. I want to make sure that I preserve Israel. Think about what God had to go through to preserve Israel down through the years with all the shenanigans that they pulled. Think about preserving David, just David, to be the man after God's own heart. To be the the man whose lineage would sit on the throne for eternity. Think about what God had to do just to preserve that guy. The very seed of the promise in Abraham is a man who lies twice about his wife. Well, he tells a half lie. Because Sarah was his half-sister. I mean, I'm not knocking these people. I'm not, I mean, you know, obviously that's God's business. But God had to go through a lot. To preserve them. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. He's got to go through a lot to preserve you too. And me. I got a license to preach. So y'all just let me. <laughs> so the descendants of Abraham are God's promised covenant people. Into which. Into which. The Gentiles have been grafted. Now, most people in, under the sound of my voice, not all, but the most people under the sound of my voice are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. We, you can read Romans 11, we have been grafted into the promise of Abraham just like if you were to take a wild olive shoot and graft it into a vine. And it would become a part of it. It would start to draw its sustenance from that vine. It would be a part, it would be foreign in one way, but it would become a part. In the same way, all of the people outside of the, of the, uh, Abraham promise, Abraham covenant, everyone outside of that, God, through Jesus Christ, has taken us and grafted us into the branch of Jesse. Without God's preservation of Israel, there would be no people for us to be a part of. There would be no people for us to be grafted into. So God is greater than the people of promise. His work is greater. The verses tell us that God gave them a testimony. He's using poetry here. He says he gave them a testimony, he gave them, he appointed a law, which we understand testimony and law are basically the same thing. It's God's word. He ordained or appointed that for which would be a witness for him. That which would bear testimony to his character and his perfections. He established the law and the testimony and the precepts so that we would know who he is. 
Not so we can develop a bunch of rules and regulations to strangle one another with. Or to strangle ourselves. Because it's knowing God. Knowing God is the very definition of eternal life. Very definition. He appointed a law. He appointed a standard in Israel. Psalm 147, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules or his just decrees to Israel. Again, poetry because Jacob and Israel are the same. Jacob became Israel. God set a stand, God set decrees. And you've heard me say this recently. I'll say it again. It's not so that we, he's afraid we might have some fun or he's afraid we might enjoy ourselves. No, he established the, the, the laws and the decrees so that we could live at the optimum of the way he designed us. We can live with the fullest of life. The fullest experience of life is when we live within the parameters of God's decrees and God's ways. He commanded the fathers to teach their children. He commanded the fathers to make known to the children God's ways, God's decrees. Again, not so they could be encumbered. Now, the rabbis of that day, they they took the laws of God and created uh, nothing but burdens. And Jesus said to them, you putting things on the people that you won't even do yourself. Because they, they took what was supposed to create life. And it created death because it was nothing but a burden. The fathers had the responsibility, fathers, mothers, and everyone else, to speak to the next generation. And he tells us in this psalm that we're talking about the born and the unborn, which makes pro-life that much more important. It tells, he said, we want them to set their hope on God and not forget his commandments. Set their hope on God and not forget his commandments. We need to make sure the next generation that we have influence with understands the truth. Not just the truth, but the truth as it applies to life. Now, there, the voices of the culture today are getting louder. The voices of the culture are getting, I think, are getting panicky. Because they're saying some really stupid things. Some really dumb But I believe it's because that the culture, the culture that I'm talking about is the culture of the world. The culture of the world is influenced by Satan himself. I'm not saying everybody who's coming on TV and saying a boy's a girl and a girl's a boy. I'm not saying they're they're of the devil. By the way, that's not true. But what I'm saying is that the spirit of the age is influencing the voices of our culture. And every day I read something or hear something that makes me think 
and you went to school for 16 years for that? That you would deny a very basic element of biology? I'm not here to get on issues, but a, a boy's a boy and a girl's a girl. I think I made the girl mad yesterday at Zaxby's. She said, can I get a name for your order? And I said, Larry. And she said, Mary? Oh, she, let me back up. She said, can I get a good name for your order? And I said, well, Larry would be a good name. And she said, Mary? And I said, no, Mary would be a bad name. And then I think the way I made her mad, I said, uh, my pronoun is he. <laughs> the girl who handed, the girl who took my money, she just handed me my money. She didn't say a word. So I got up and got my food. My wife's with me. She just, matter of fact, she's patting me on the shoulder to make sure I don't get out of line. I get up to get my food, a little girl, if you've been to the new Zaxby's on 109 up there, it's one of those where the door's open, you know, like kind of like Chick-fil-A, the new Chick-fil-A. The door's open, little girl walks out, hands me my food, turns around, walks back in. I said, has the cat got your tongue? Which she had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> she, she, she said, excuse me? I said, I didn't hear a thank you. Or have a good evening or any of that stuff. And I was laughing at her. I, mean, I was laughing. She knew I wasn't mad. And, oh, well, thank you and have a good evening. I said, well, you do the same. <laughs> what are we, where have we gotten today? I want to tell you that if you don't teach your children the truth, somebody will teach them the untruth. Lord, help me word this right. I'm not talking about... I just read a couple of verses about proclaiming God's kingdom, the glory. We sang about it today. Proclaiming the glorious kingdom of God. Teach the children about God's kingdom. Teach the children that there are basically two kingdoms in the world. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And it boils down to that. Now, there may be other kingdoms set up and other things going, but they're all tied to one of those two kingdoms. And the voices of our culture are in the majority of them are tied to the kingdom of darkness. And the way you fight that, they... One of the boys on the Andy Griffith show asked Barney, how do you fight fire? Or Barney said, how do you fight fire? And then one of them said, with a hose. Of course, he was wanting to say fight fire with a fire, but I digress. How do you fight the culture? Now, I don't want to make anybody mad. I'm going to sit in in case you want to throw something at me. You don't fight the culture by getting on Facebook and railing against everybody. You don't get on social media and try to be right. 
when I was two years old, <laughs> somebody said, well, this is going to get weird. When I was two years old, my family bought a house. We, I grew up in Panama City, Florida. We bought a house, and uh, the yard was close enough. We weren't on the beach. We were, it was close enough that the first 10 inches or so of the soil was nothing but white sand. You dig down, get about that deep, and then you get into some red clay. And this yard was full of what of sand spurs. I don't know how, you know, Florida sand spurs. And you know, growing up a redneck, I walk around barefooted a lot. But anyway, and it was just, I mean, it was everywhere, sand spurs everywhere. The way my parents got rid of those sand spurs is they didn't go out there with a hoe and a shovel and dig them up. How long would that have taken? They planted grass that had runners in it. And that grass, as it grew, it choked out those sand spurs. By the time I was a teenager or earlier, there were no sand spurs in that yard. But there was plenty of good grass. And the way we combat the voices of the culture is not to combat the culture, but is teach the children the truth. Kingdom. There is a kingdom. There is another kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. This kingdom has ways. They're God's ways. This kingdom has a king, King Jesus. This kingdom has principles that we live by. This kingdom has morals that we embrace that God established. And there's life in those. I hope I'm communicating. And when you deal with the alternate voices of our culture, as always, the main measuring point, the main measuring stick that we have, and we sang about this today too. I hesitate to use the word this. The main measuring point is how is Jesus presented and portrayed? What do we hear about the Lord Jesus? First of all, let me deal with church people. This is none of you, so don't get all bent out of shape. Unless it is you. <laughs> and then if we, if you're all bent out of shape, we'll know why. M- marriage is between a man and a woman. Period. Oh, I don't believe Jesus would believe that. Oh, I don't believe the, I don't believe that. I just don't believe God would be that narrow minded. Well, it's kind of right here, black and white. Oh, Jesus would never say that. And then you read on the verse where Jesus said that. A man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. Pretty clear. Oh, I just, I just don't believe that. That's old. That's, that's, that's ancient. And that's what we're dealing with in the church, saints. And I'm just, I use that as an example. There's a thousand others. My God, when you hear from my God, I know what's coming. Some alternate version of the Bible. By the way, I heard recently, uh, do y'all have something in the oven? I'm talking about in the oven, oven. But anyway, we're not, anyway. (laughs) 
I heard recently that China, or as Gomer said, China, if you don't know who Gomer is, then I, I feel sorry for you. And, and I'm not talking about the wife of Hosea either. China has spent the last 10 years rewriting the Bible. They have created their own Bible. And just one example is where the Bible would call for allegiance to God or to the Lord Jesus. It, it charges allegiance, allegiance to the Chinese national government. You say, well, that could never happen here. I don't know if you make coffee in the morning, but you better wake up and smell it. Yes, that could happen here. Our own government, or elements of our government, let's say it that way, would love to rob us of things, of our rights. They would love to, I mean, wasn't that long ago there was a mayor in the city of Houston who told all the pastors in the area to send them her, their notes, send her their notes. So she could make sure they weren't violating something that violated her. You know, they, basically they told her, boop. And that's what I would have told her. I said, if you want my notes, you come sit in here on Sunday morning and listen to them, but I'm not sending you anything. What is that? It's the spirit of the age, saints. You can't get mad at her. Of course, people did. But what does the culture do with Jesus? I'm just going to run through this quick. But Jesus is not a mystic or a mystical figure. And uh, the people in the culture try to make him uh, some mystical person. See, he's a mystic. Jesus is not a religion. Jesus is not an ideology. Jesus is not a theology. Jesus is not a set of principles. That Because we can manipulate and work principles. And we can adjust principles to our own liking. You cannot adjust the Lord Jesus. Now, if you do adjust him, all you've done is turn him into a principle and then adjust him. But if you want to talk about Jesus being a person, a real person, you can't, you can't manipulate him. He is what he is. He is who he is. He says what he says. And he said, if you love me, you're going to do what I say. Which means if you don't do what I say, you don't really love me. Jesus is not a man, a good man who taught good things. That's a real good one. People like that one. Jesus is not a good man who taught good things. Of course, I have to refer back to Brother Clive here. Clive Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said about himself would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. Ricky sings a song about this. And kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis. He's not just a good man who taught good things. Who is this Jesus? Again, I'm going through this quickly, but I think you see the point. What are we teaching the next generation about who Jesus is? The person. The person. And that's who Jesus is. He's a real person. He lived on this earth. He had blood in his veins just like we do. He got hungry. He got sleepy. He got tired. He got angry sometimes. It was righteous anger, but he still got angry. He cried. He laughed. Real person. And then that great cloud of witnesses, I think, went up with him. He ascended to heaven. John, in his first letter, the first, first John, John starts out his letter with this. We have heard. We have heard. And, you know, by we, he meant I and those with me. He said, we have heard and we have seen. In other words, John did not hear about Jesus. Bible says John leaned against the bosom of Jesus. He was there. We have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon him. And then he said, we have touched him. So you can take the testimony of John to the bank. Peter says the same thing in his letters. We were there. I saw him. He was dead and now he's alive. I saw it with my own two eyes. The culture doesn't want you to teach that to the little ones. Jesus is God among us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is, he is God taking his place in humanity. He is God incarnate. God in the flesh. Perfect. Without sin. All of the human capabilities and characteristics I just talked about, and yet without sin, without blemish. The perfect sacrifice for us on the cross, the eternal Passover lamb, God among us. Jesus is not just teachings, but Jesus is the teaching. Because why? He's a person. He's not a doctrine. He's not a teaching. He's a person. David Jackman's a British evangelist, and he wrote this. There is an attraction in restating the Christian gospel. Do you, do you believe that? That today, that there's a, every day I read somebody else who wants to restate the gospel or re, or change. I'm not a Bible thumper, but I'm a Bible reader. There's an attraction in restating the Christian gospel and changing the message from one of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ to one of just following his splendid example. What would Jesus do? See, I have a little problem with that. But anyway, not a big problem, just a little. I started to get a tattoo of that, but I decided not to. 
Those, those of you who know me, I forgive. I mean, ask, I ask you to forgive me for lying. Uh, changing the message from one of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ to one of following his spirit example or asking him to touch us up in those areas of our lives that need a fresh coat of paint. It is all governed by this world and the desire to make it a more comfortable place where you can enjoy yourself more. It has nothing to say on the issues of eternity. It has no dynamic by which lives can be changed and offers no ultimate significance beyond the grave. Tell the coming generation the truth. Tell the coming generation about the kingdom of God. Tell them about Jesus. Jesus, the man. Jesus, the God. Jesus, the person, who he is, teach them God's ways. We, not long ago, we dealt with the psalm that said, uh, God showed the, uh, the children of Israel his acts, but that he showed Moses his ways. Teach them God's ways. By the way, we think that when they turn 14 or 15 is when we lose these kids. And, and, and then generally speaking, I don't think that's true. I've got a book back there in my library entitled, They're Already Gone, or maybe it's just called Already Gone. And here the premise of the book is that, that they interview 14 and 15 year olds and they say, when did you begin to question and doubt your faith? It was when they were like seven. The premise of the book is you better teach them this stuff by the time they get to be six or seven or eight, or you got a fight on your hands when they get to be 14 and 15. Now, I'm not saying they won't act up, but when you got this embedded in them when they're six or seven, I'm talking about true Bible truth. Old black minister I used to listen to said the truth, true truth. You say, well, okay, it's too late for my kids. Never too late for God's grace. Teach them so that they would not be stubborn or rebellious. And he's telling the children of Israel, we want you to teach the children so they won't be stubborn and rebellious like the forefathers were. And he said, those, those folks, their hearts were not firm or stable towards God. Let me ask you a question. Is your heart firm and stable towards God? I didn't ask you, were you perfect? I didn't ask you, did you have it all figured out? I didn't ask you did, if every day you acted like the, the uh, embodiment of Jesus himself, because if you did, then you got me beat. I ask you, is your heart firm? Is it stable toward him? The person, not a doctrine, a person. Now, you get doctrines with Jesus, a doctrine just a teaching. If you hang around Jesus long enough, you're going to get taught something. It says they were not faithful to God. It says in some versions they were not steadfast. Their heart was not firm, it wasn't stable, and they weren't faithful to God. The coming generation 
can be firm, can be stable, established, and faithful to God. If we'll tell them about Jesus the person, if we'll tell them about God's kingdom, God's way of life, if we'll tell them, they can be firm and stable. And they don't have to be influenced by the voices of the culture. I'll finish with this. It's a great teaching. It's a great uh, tool for you, especially parents. And this is what Deuteronomy says. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of the ways of God, the things of God, the words of God, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Think about that. Sitting in your house, walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you get up. What is he saying? You don't have to have a Sunday school class. As a matter of fact, if... Oh, let me say two things here. One... If the only thing you teach your children is when you have a family devotional, then they're not getting enough. And the second thing I want to say is, if you think bringing him here on Sunday morning so they can be taught back there is all they need, you're greatly mistaken. All that's going on back there is a supplement and a help to you. Don't think the church is going to replace the parent. Just like you don't take your kids down to the schoolhouse and drop them off and say, I don't want to hear about them until, well, you, that's not the way it works. I'm going to tell you one of the reasons. I, again, I'm going to sit down. Don't throw things. I don't believe every family is supposed to homeschool. Now, the older I get, the more I think. I've met parents that saints should not be homeschooling anybody. None of you. Nobody here. Nobody at home. I've met parents whose kids should be homeschooling them. But that's why we're not even talking about that. But one of the reasons that public school has failed and it has, it's because parents would drive their kids down there to the schoolhouse, kick them out the door, here's your lunch money, I don't want to hear from you for next week. Y'all got them. It used to be that parents whose kids were in public school, parents were involved in their children's education. It used to be that parents... You know, we had at least one, I'm not going to tell you which one, one of our children and my wife was on a first name basis with the assistant principal. <laughs> it used to be that a PTA was really a parent teacher association. But when we started deciding, you know where that started? Lord help me. 
for a long time now, the state, and I don't mean the state of Tennessee or the state of Louisiana or the state, I mean the state, the government, the whole state thing, for a long time the state has tried to tell us that they could handle our children better than we could. That they should be given responsibility. And they have said that. They hadn't tried to hide that. They have said that if we'll just let the, we'll just leave it alone, they can handle our children better. And if you'd let some of them have their way, they would take the children. So anyway, it's great that you bring your kids here, and I wish you'd bring more, and they're getting a great curriculum back there. But don't think that's, don't think that's all they need. That's just a drop in the bucket. Teach your children when you're walking around, when you're lying down, when you're getting up. In the everyday flow of your life, that's when you teach your children. As life goes on, as life progresses, teach them God's ways. And that God's ways are beneficial to them. <clears throat> because, <clears throat> again, the world wants us to communicate that the, the ways of, the, of God and the ways of the church are there so that we can't have any kind of enjoyment or joy or life and we can't have any fun. That's what the world wants to teach them. Teach them that God's ways, God's ways produce in our life and we have all kind of joy within the boundaries and the parameters of God's ways. He, you know, again, I used this a few weeks ago. You were here. I apologize. You know, if you got a vehicle sitting out there in the parking lot and you go out there and put pour water into your gas tank, it's not going to run very good very long. At some point, it's going to spit and sputter and, and you're going to be sitting beside the road. But you could say, well, bless God, it's my car. I want to do what I want to do. And the manufacturer of that car said, yeah, you can say, say that, but if you don't, if you want it to run, you got to put gasoline in it or diesel. If you have a diesel, you got to put this kind of fuel in there. Well, I, I just don't believe my God wouldn't want me to. You see, that's how stupid that is. But we do the same thing when we look at God and we say, I think I know better what I can do with my life. And God says, yeah, but I made you. Well, I thank you for doing that. Now leave me alone. Now we don't say that. We don't say, God, leave me alone. We might. But our life says, hey, God, leave me alone. I got this. But you don't have it. Teach your children. Stand with me. Lord Jesus, I certainly pray today. <clears throat> That you have said more than I have said. I pray that this, these words of this psalm would reach each one of us. Every one of us would have varying applications of this psalm. But at the end of the day, Lord God, the, the coming generation, the ones who we sow into would know you, would know your ways would know your kingdom and would know you, Lord Jesus, the king of that kingdom. Help us to not get caught up in the, the voices. Help us to not get caught up in the temptation to fight the culture. 
but to sow good seed that will choke out the message of the culture in these little ones. Not so little in some cases. As we go out into this world that you have planted us in and you have set us in, help us, help us to draw on your ways and your person to be able to plant that seed that you've given us into the hearts and minds of other people. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And may you use us, your people, to sow the seed of that kingdom in this earth. Thank you for our time together today. We're honored that we were able to gather and to offer worship and praise to you today. And we pray that all that we've done today is pleasing in your sight and a sweet fragrance to your nostrils. We, we worship you as our God. I thank you and I pray in the name of Jesus and everyone said, God bless you. You're dismissed.